From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Traffic's back to nearly pre-pandemic levels on many roads, and congestion is just one Colorado transit issue. The actual condition of the pavement on many roads is very bad. And the Colorado Department of Transportation has this 10-year plan for repairs and expansions. It's less than half funded at this point, so money's a big issue here. We'll look at plans that might mean more funding. Then the rapid development of COVID-19 vaccines was just the beginning. Now scientists are working to stave off future coronavirus pandemics. Plus, some state lawmakers want students to learn media literacy in school. Others say it's an attempt to push political views on kids. And a Fort Collins poet finds comfort in the outdoors and plants that bloom after years without rain. This idea of resilience and coming back was really powerful to me. Hi, I'm Caitlin Kim from CPR News. Every day, I cover Congress and what your representatives and the federal government are doing for you and for Colorado. I'm thankful that you value insightful, independent reporting that provides you with news you can use. You'll rely on CPR to keep you informed about what's going on in your community and beyond. Now I'm asking you to support the journalism that matters to you because you make it possible when you donate. Please give today at CPR.org. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Colorado's transportation systems could get a major upgrade in the coming years. Both the state legislature and Congress will debate funding proposals this spring that mean billions of dollars in new revenue for Colorado's roads, public transit, and more. CPR's Nathaniel Miner is here now to help us sort this out. Welcome to the program. Hey, Avery. Set the table for us. What's the state of our roads? Uh, Our roads need some help. The actual condition of the pavement on many roads, especially interstate highways, is very bad. Congestion is a big problem, too. Uh, We got a brief break from that during last year's lockdowns. But at this point, traffic is just about back to pre-pandemic levels on many of the roads um, in the state. And the Colorado Department of Transportation has this 10-year plan for repairs and expansions. It's less than half funded at this point. So money is a big issue here. Why has Colorado not been able to keep up with its transportation funding? Well, one of its main funding sources is the state gas tax, and it's been at 22 cents a gallon since 1991. And if you've been around a while, you might know that voters passed the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights in 1992, a year later. So that requires all tax increases go to a vote. And the public, um, us Coloradans, have denied multiple ballot measures to raise new money for roads. So the legislature has only sporadically raised cash uh, over the last 30 years, like new fees here, uh, one-time general fund money there, that sort of thing. But that's not been enough to really you know, address the full scope of the problem. And how would these new funding proposals change that? Let's take a look at the state proposal first. It would raise about $4 billion over the next decade. And it would sidestep voters um, and the Taxpayer Bill of Rights by raising fees and not taxes. Um, So there'd be new fees on gasoline, new fees on electric vehicle registrations, on Uber and Lyft rides, on deliveries, things like that. Oh, so it's not just gasoline. That's right. So the state wants nearly one million electric vehicles on the road here by 2030. And these new fees are meant to just kind of build new revenue streams, right? So as like our use of gasoline goes down, we need to come up with other ways to pay for roads and bridges. These new fees will start out low, but they'll rise automatically every few years to keep up with rising costs. 
How would the state spend this new money? So about a billion and a half would go toward highways. And CDOT wants to do some expansion, like a complete rebuild of Interstate 270 in Commerce City, um, another lane on I-70 at Floyd Hill in the mountains. Those places are routinely congested. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So adding a new lane would add more capacity there. Uh, But the department is really trying to put more dollars into repairs, into fixing what we already have, repaving roads that in some cases haven't been touched in half a century. But why not expand roads more? Well, there's a cost to it in a couple of ways. One is the environment. Transportation accounts for a third of all emissions in the state. And the state wants to move to electric vehicles to reduce that. Hundreds of millions of dollars in this plan would support new electric vehicle chargers and other infrastructure. But it also wants to reduce the number of miles that people drive. And if you expand roads, people will drive more. So those things are at odds. And also expanding roads is really, really expensive. So does this proposal do anything to address congestion? It does some things, yeah. So it's building in more transit infrastructure to some of these projects, like fancy bus stations along I-25 that would make taking the bus, say, from Fort Collins to Denver, like a lot more attractive. Um, Transit buses can use new toll lanes for free, and that could incentivize people to use transit instead of driving. CDOT also wants to expand its busting network across the state. Uh, I've also noticed something, though, that isn't in this proposal. And what is that? So one thing that often gets overlooked in discussions about transportation is how we build our cities, right? Like if, if cities continue to sprawl out in a way that makes driving the only reasonable method of getting around, we can expect traffic to get worse. And there was talk earlier this year about including something in the bill that would incentivize development near transit stations. Right. You'd start maybe building in a way that doesn't require driving for everything in your life. Uh, But that did not make the cut. That is not in this proposal at this point. I want to stay on transit here for a minute. How does it fit in with the state's climate goals? So passenger vehicles are the top emitter of greenhouse gases in the transportation sector. And as I mentioned before, transportation is is the biggest, you know, emissions category in the state, right? So passenger vehicles are a big deal. They're certainly getting cleaner, right? Especially electric vehicles. But even cleaner still is no car at all. And expanding public transit so it's more a viable alternative to driving is one way to encourage that. There's some transit money in the state's proposal, but there's a lot more in the federal plan, too, right? That's right. I don't see any money in the state plan for Colorado's largest transit agency, RTD. But the Biden plan calls for $85 billion for the nation's mass transit systems. And presumably that would include RTD. So federal stimulus money has really helped keep the lights on over there over the last year in the pandemic. This new money would allow RTD to actually expand its services, and that could help cut traffic and emissions. What else is in the federal proposal? It's so much, Avery. It's huge. It's, it's, it's a million things. Um, but if we're going to focus on, on the transportation, on the infrastructure side of it, there's $100 billion plus dollars for highways. Um, they're really also pushing a fix-it-first line, um, not talking about expanding highways. So that's interesting. $20 billion for road safety, especially for cyclists and pedestrians. And also $80 billion for Amtrak. And some of that could land here. Yes, I know that Colorado is working on a front-range passenger rail line. Yeah, so from Pueblo to Fort Collins is the initial idea here. And Amtrak has said repeatedly over the last six months or so that it wants to dump a few billion dollars into help making that line a reality. The Biden proposal would actually give them the money to do that. 
Um, they're still very early in the planning phase, so don't get too excited yet. We don't even exactly know where it would go, you know, where exactly up and down the front range it would go. And it would it would take years before any construction starts on that. So to wrap up here, should we get excited about this? What are the chances any of this happens? Well, I'm excited uh, to follow them, at least. Uh, you know, put together, they could really transform how we get around our state. And I think both proposals have decent chances. Uh, key Democrats, including the governor, are behind the state proposal. They control state government. Conservatives are going to push back. They already have a bit on how they're going to pay for it and where it's going to go to. But if Democrats can unite on it, they can pass it. Uh, the session adjourns in June. So um, look for that to start moving in the next couple of weeks. What about on the federal side? Democrats control Congress, but barely. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and this proposal is is huge, more than $2 billion, with some $600 billion for transportation. Historically, the federal government has given far more money to highways than to transit. And this bill changes that. It's much more equal. And that might make it politically unpopular because so many people in this country, not just Colorado, but across the country, right, they rely on their cars. So we'll just have to see what happens. Thanks, Nathaniel. You're welcome. CPR's transportation reporter, Nathaniel Miner. Meanwhile, Colorado has billions of additional dollars to spend in its next budget. The pandemic had forced big cuts last year. CPR's been to Berkland reports on who might benefit from the extra money. Republican Senator Bob Rankin sits on the Joint Budget Committee, which introduced its proposed budget to the full Senate this week. He says he's glad the bill would reduce a long wait list for services for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. The budget would do this by funding more spaces in group homes. It creates 520 slots. We think we have as many as 3,000 people waiting for services, so it's a great start. K-12 schools are also poised to benefit after seeing their budgets cut in the early stages of the pandemic. Budget Committee member Senator Chris Hansen is a Democrat from Denver. He says the state is able to restore those cuts and even give additional money to schools. I think K-12 is going to be in a position where they can really rebound, help students catch up that fell behind during the pandemic. Other parts of the budget aim to make the state more equitable and add funds for colleges and universities to recruit and retain students of color and first-generation students. Democratic Senator Dominic Moreno chairs the budget committee. All of those students, I would say they've been disproportionately affected by the pandemic. All of this money is available to spend because during the pandemic, white-collar workers did better than expected. While that meant more tax revenue, Colorado lawmakers are aware that lower-income workers haven't rebounded. They say they want to target their relief to those Coloradans. Democrats control state government, but this budget does already have some bipartisan support. Senator Rankin says he does expect fellow Republicans to push for changes, like more money for roads and bridges. I don't see major, major issues with the budget, but, you know, the minority party always asks questions and <laughs> you never get a unanimous vote on the budget. And there's another wild card. Lawmakers and Governor Jared Polis also need to figure out how to spend Colorado's share of the federal COVID relief money. That could change priorities for the state's own spending before this budget is finalized. I'm Benta Berkland, CPR News. 
The rapid development of COVID-19 vaccines is a giant step forward for medical research. But scientists aren't the types to rest on their laurels. Many are looking ahead to the treatments that might head off future pandemics. Greg Dean is one of those scientists. Dean runs the Department of Microbiology, Immunology and Pathology at Colorado State University. Greg, welcome to the show. Morning, Avery. Your university is developing four potential vaccines that would work on multiple coronaviruses, sort of a pan-coronavirus vaccine. How would something like that be different from, say, the current COVID-19 vaccines, which focus on just one virus? Right. So clearly we've had a singular focus right now with uh, COVID-19 And the strategies in the existing vaccines have really very specifically targeted that virus. But we know that there are uh, a a large number of coronaviruses in wildlife and in uh, reservoirs, animal reservoirs, that could jump into humans. And we would see a similar um, outcome possibly, you know, an epidemic or a pandemic in the worst case scenario. So the question now is, can we consider a vaccine strategy that could protect us in a more broad sense against those potential coronaviruses that might um, emerge from uh, an animal reservoir? So instead of waiting until it's a crisis, working on it ahead of time, CSU is trying different approaches to achieve that goal. You're working on one in particular that uses bacteria found in yogurt and other foods. Explain that, if you can, in layman's terms. Yeah, yeah, it's it's an interesting idea, and it's not a new idea either. Uh, But the, the concept is to take a beneficial bacteria, a probiotic, that we know interacts with us, uh, interacts with our immune system, and and add in uh, proteins from the virus that then the bacteria introduces to our immune system. And in that way, we're really exploiting the benefits of that probiotic and having it target an immune response against the virus um, there are a number of advantages with that. So we know probiotics are, are very um, safe and we, we would um, deliver this orally so there's no needles involved. Uh, it could be stored at room temperature, which is a huge advantage. We're seeing the challenges of the ultra cold storage required for the current vaccines, some of the current vaccines. And, and we don't necessarily need a trained medical Um, infrastructure to deliver the vaccine. Altogether, these really create an opportunity to deliver a vaccine uh, inexpensively, rapidly, and to, importantly, uh, to low and middle income countries where the infrastructure may not be there for them to take advantage of the current types of vaccines we are using today. That is fascinating. Many of us have only just learned the term coronavirus in the past year. Coronaviruses got their name because of a crown-like shape on the virus that you see under a microscope. They can cause the common cold and other respiratory illnesses besides COVID-19. What is it about the possibility of other coronaviruses surfacing that makes the development of a pan vaccine so critical? Right. Well, um, 
we have seen now in the last 20 years, three coronaviruses emerge into the human population. Uh, and each one of them has raised concerns. So in the early 2000s, there was SARS-1. And then several years later, there was MERS. So the Middle Eastern Respiratory um, Virus that uh, was uh, uh, found in camels and transmitted to humans. And now we have SARS-2. So SARS has been, or uh, coronaviruses have been on our radar for quite some time. Uh, and we have been looking at where are these viruses? What animals are reservoirs? And, and we've heard a lot about bats, of course. Uh, but uh, we know now that uh, we need to be prepared, better prepared. And it's unlikely that uh, COVID-19 is the last coronavirus that we will see in our lifetimes. Well, tell us a little bit more about how a pan-coronavirus vaccine might work. Would people need to get one vaccine every year preemptively, or could one potentially offer a whole lifetime of protection? Sure. That's the big question. And even with the COVID-19 vaccines we have right now, the question is, is just that, how long will that immunity last? And, and we won't know. We will have to discover this in real time, essentially. And the, the same is true for a pan-coronavirus um, vaccine strategy. Although I think uh, there, there's a couple um, uh, benefits that we have. We're, we're not under such pressure for the pan-coronavirus vaccine. We can take a little bit more time and, and assess the durability of that immune response. And uh, we can also uh, learn it uh, from the vaccines that are currently being administered to millions of, of people. This is quite a, a remarkable experiment we're doing it and tremendous data will come for that, from that that will help us um, uh, consider how we would develop a pan-coronavirus vaccine. And just the range of this vaccine is incredible. Okay, my first thought when I heard that there was a pan-corona vaccine, that there's work to develop that, could it eventually do away with the common cold? Yeah, good question. So uh, one approach, an important approach to have a pan-coronavirus vaccine is to look at what is in common across all of these viruses and, and then target those commonalities with the vaccine. Um, the, the coronaviruses that cause the, the common cold uh, could uh, be included in a pan-coronavirus vaccine. It's important to note though, that there are many viruses that cause what we call the common cold. Uh, so the common cold is really quite vague and is mostly just a description of symptoms. And there are several different viruses in addition to coronaviruses that are associated with the common cold. So just a pan-coronavirus wouldn't, unfortunately, eliminate the common cold. Uh. Still sounds like it could be an incredible development. You worked on HIV vaccine for years, and that doesn't fall into the category of a coronavirus. But in any case, why has the development of that vaccine been so elusive when we've seen for the COVID-19 vaccine that it was developed so quickly? 
Yeah, that is a, an excellent question and important to understand. Uh, HIV offers just extraordinary challenges. Uh, so it is a very different virus. It's called a lentivirus. And importantly, it actually inserts its uh, genetic information into our genetic information. And, and that is a very different strategy for the virus. The coronavirus doesn't do that. It has points in its life cycle that are much more easy for us to target with a vaccine as compared to HIV, which has a, a you know, the, this capability to, to insert itself into our DNA and then also to mutate at just a phenomenal rate much more uh, quickly than what we're seeing with the coronavirus. Could the recent use of the mRNA vaccines offer an answer to the development of an HIV vaccine? Sure. Uh, everybody would love to, to see uh, whether that would uh, potentially uh, address uh, our uh, challenge with, with HIV. And there are studies going on right now with these very um, same types of technology and the same companies that are involved in the uh, COVID-19 vaccine work. And it strikes me that you worked on a vaccine for HIV, like we said, for years. Now you're trying to develop this pan-coronavirus vaccine. I imagine scientists around the world are also trying to do the same thing. And yet your efforts might not result in an effective vaccine. We're still waiting to see. What motivates you to keep doing this? Sure. The, the likelihood of success with any vaccine strategy is very low. And that is something that we face all the time. However, uh, any of the vaccines that actually work are built on an enormous amount of research that's happened in many different labs in many different places. So uh, the community works together uh, and ultimately toward that goal of delivering a, uh, a, a, an effective vaccine. Part of uh, what we do is try to think exactly what situation would our vaccine platform be most effective for. So um, it, it may, and we do believe that coronavirus is, is a, 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 an excellent target for our vaccine platforms here. But, you know, we, we have to live with that reality every day that we may work very hard and our particular vaccine might not uh, turn out to be the one that goes into people's arms or is delivered orally, but that we are still contributing to the body of knowledge that will uh, help us as uh, a scientific community provide uh, the vaccines that are needed for the human population. So that research is never wasted. We've only got about 30 seconds left, but just briefly, for the COVID-19 vaccines, do you think people are going to need an annual COVID-19 vaccine, at least for the near future? I think it's a very real possibility and it's something that we must plan on. So we know that the mutations are creating um, um, variants that uh, are transmitted more easily and we may have to adapt our vaccines for that. And then again, we are not certain how long our immunity will last. So we may need boosters. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. 
You bet. My pleasure, Avery. You have a great day. You too. Greg Dean is a professor and the head of the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. We've been talking about efforts to develop a pan-coronavirus vaccine. When we come back, a push to teach media literacy in schools. I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You've been here a long time, and you remember when that giant rectangular apartment building was a block of tiny houses. Or you just got here, and the view from this apartment shows you a whole new city to explore. I'm David Sachs, and it's Map Week at Denverite. One thing we're talking about? Mental maps and how your experience with the city defines how you see development, politics, and the future of our shared space. Denverite, in your inbox and at denverite.com. Powered by Colorado Public Radio. Torrents of information hit us at lightning speed on the internet. Some of it's true, some's false, some is in between. It can be hard to parse through for kids and adults. We've talked with 12-year-old Hayes Thornton of Denver after the November elections. It's confusing for everyone, especially considering there's a lot of like younger people like my age on social media who are being told so many different things from like so many different like sources. A bill in the state legislature aims to address that problem by adding something called media literacy to educational standards for Colorado schools, from preschool to high school. But critics say it's government overreach. Lisa Cutter is a Democrat and representative for Colorado's House District 25. She's a lead sponsor for the bill. Welcome, Representative Cutter. Thank you, Avery. It's really nice to be here. What does media literacy mean? Media literacy... um, means just being able to parse the information that uh, is coming is coming at us so quickly. It means being able to understand if something is fact or an opinion, if um, if a video is fake um, or a real actual video, if um, you know if something's a advertorial or an editorial, just being able to discern what a good source of information is and, and how to sort of ferret that out. Obviously, media is not specific to the Internet. People have been having to parse through magazines, books, newspapers for a long time. How has the importance of media literacy changed in recent decades? Well, because when all those uh, all those formats that you uh, just discussed, I mean, they have editorial filters for the most part. Right. The traditional media um has standards and and policies about ethics and facts checking and and um you know, credible journalists have a background and belong to organizations that require them to operate, you know, in some with some kind of um, boundaries around ethics and, and procedures and things. And now, you know, anyone can put anything on the Internet. I mean, which is great. You know, free speech is is wonderful. Everyone should be allowed to um, to have the opportunity to voice their opinions and to share information. But it, it's just so much. And the guardrails really aren't there in the same way. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't walk around with a little pocket computer with uh, volumes and volumes of information when I was 10 years old. And that's what kids are faced with now. And and again, not those guardrails provided by tr- more traditional media. And you use the word guardrails, but you've said that Colorado students, you want them to learn how to think, not what to think and how to critically read information sources, not which information sources to read. But how do you actually do that? Well, I think um, so, for example, with guardrails, that just means like um, like a child should be able to know what a really credible source of media is um, 
you know, versus someone's opinion. It's okay to agree with someone's opinion, but you should understand that that's what it is. And when I say credible source, I mean, sort of reflecting back on what I said a few minutes ago is that, um, you know, newspapers and uh, larger outlets like you guys, for example, you have policies, you have fact checkers. So, I want everyone, kids and, and really everyone to understand that, yeah, it might be good information, but um, it's worth digging in and double checking because that particular publication or blog or whatever it might be doesn't have the same standards. They don't have to go through uh, three layers of fact checking and have an ethics policy and need to get three sources on both sides of a story or, or whatever that might be. So it's just being able to weigh all those things and then make your own opinion, your own decisions about how to consider that information. So understanding sort of the pipeline of how information comes to us. This has been a longstanding interest for you. The very first piece of legislation you proposed as a freshman representative in 2019 had to do with media literacy. It passed and led to a study and report that included resources and links for teachers. What else stood out to you from that report? Well, just the need. I mean, it just it just was confirmed. Um, they did they dug in and did some really great research on um, on the need for this and the idea that um, um, there is so much information out there. And it was corroborated by the the people on this committee as an independent committee and um, experts and teachers and um, administrators, parents, and then just media and like li- media experts, librarians, that kind of thing. And you know they are all taking this very seriously. And I think that's what really stands out to me is that um, people are beginning to realize that this is a real problem in our society and something that we can and should be addressing. Your current bill would build on that list of teaching resources by putting them in an online resource bank that the State Department Mm -hmm. of Education would create and maintain. There's been some pushback, largely from Republicans, who are concerned that the resources might prioritize progressive viewpoints. Here's Mark Baisley, a Republican who represents Douglas and Teller Counties, and Tanya Van Beber, a Republican who represents Weld County. We are concerned that this bill is not what's being proposed of simply being critical thinking, but rather to assert a leftist worldview, which I would contend is a religious worldview. Another question that I would have for the bill sponsor, or maybe a comment, that I would like us all to take into consideration is as I'm quoted in the media, quote, this is necessary because we have a crisis of confidence in our democracy, in our science, and that there's a public health emergency. And as a result, we must form a base of mutually agreed upon and verified facts, end quote. Which brings me back to the question, who's verifiable facts? What verifiable facts? From whom? And for what purpose? Others have insinuated that this bill is essentially communist propaganda and that it's unconstitutional. Here's Representative Andres Pico, a Republican from Colorado Springs who represents part of El Paso County. And it is what's in the resource bank that gives us problems. That is not factual information in there. It has an awful lot of stuff which is extraordinarily biased, one-sided. But it is so far off that I would suggest that it needs to be renamed Pravda the Rockies as opposed to the resource bank. Now, I'm told that some people don't quite get that reference. But those of us who are Cold War warriors can tell you who Pravda was. And that was the Ministry of Propaganda of that evil empire of the Soviet Union. Representative Cutter, how do you respond to those concerns? 
Well, there's just so much to unpack there. <laughs> I'm furiously writing notes. And um, let me let me just say that facts are facts. I mean, there's there's ways, again, we're not telling people how to think, but there's ways to corroborate facts. I mean, one of the arguments uh, by one of rep the representatives you just featured, you know, was a pushback against NASA having factual information. I mean, when I look at, you know, the preponderance of evidence pointing in one direction, then I would consider that a fact. So I think, um, I think I, I really don't understand some of this pushback, to be honest with you. This is a bipartisan bill. It should be something we're all concerned about. Um, there, let's see, the resource bank really, um, really is, is just that. It's just resources for people to be able to um, teach, to make it easier for teachers to get information um, regarding media literacy and how to incorporate it into their lesson planning. When they click through, some of my colleagues, my Republican colleagues clicked through so far that um, they encountered additional materials and that aren't really part of the primary resource bank. And I think that's what a lot of them are speaking to. And honestly, to me, that just um, demonstrates the need for media literacy. If they can do that, everybody can do that. The, the internet is a black hole of information. You can click through to infinity, right? There's always going to be somewhere else to go. So don't we want to arm, um, arm people with the ability to understand how to evaluate all that information that they're taking in? And you mentioned that you've talked with teachers for whom this is really important. What are teachers doing now and how would this bill change things? Well, I mean, I think a lot of teachers are um, understand the need for this and are trying to incorporate it into their lesson plans. This just makes it a part of standards. So it just means that it's something that's required, um, that they have to be incorporating um, media literacy into reading, writing, and civics standards. As they come due, they'll update standards, and then teachers throughout the uh, the state will have to do that. But they still have the opportunity. I mean, we're a local control state, and so they'll still be working within districts to develop curriculum. So that'll be up to them. But And we just provided the resource bank so that it was easier for them to, to draw down from that. Is there an age that it's most important to teach media literacy? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think everybody needs to learn media literacy, but I, we, this is for K through 12. And I think really, I love that it's starting so young because kids are so adaptable, right? I mean, this is just a new way in a sense. It's not really that new anymore, right? The the idea that there's so much media out there, but um, it's certainly tons more information than it has been 10, 20 years ago. And so this is sort of a new way um, for us to think. And, and kids just pick up these things really quickly. And I think if it's woven into curriculum from those early ages, then it's just going to be second nature. We just have a lot more to deal with in different ways than uh, we did when I was growing up. The U.S., it is polarized politically, and so is social media and even some news media. How do you make sure that schools weave that into the curriculum, that media literacy, fairly? Well, I think that that's every every teacher, every subject, there's bias, right? I mean, like you can't you can't um, you have to trust that teachers are going to do the right thing and that parents have a say at the district level. I mean, I mean, we all have a voice. Right. And I, I just think you have to trust that teachers are going to do the right thing. I think they really want kids to be critical thinkers. And that's why they're they're teachers. They want to help kids. Um, forward on the best path. I mean, sci you don't ask science teachers what their political affiliation is, right? I mean, it's, it's agnostic. This is just about facts and information and dealing with that. It's not about um, 
trying to push a certain ideology by any means. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Representative Cutter. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You have a great day. You too. Lisa Cutter is a Democrat and representative for Colorado's House District 25. She's a lead sponsor for the Media Literacy Implementation Bill. Ed Dwight of Denver never got the chance to go into space himself, but an asteroid now bears his name. Dwight is among 27 African-American, Hispanic, and Native American astronauts recently honored with namesake asteroids for helping expand horizons beyond Earth and inspiring the next generation of space explorers. Dwight was the first black astronaut trainee with NASA in 1961. He later became a successful businessman and sculptor. I spoke with him last summer. His experience with NASA helped him navigate the business side of the art world. He would go on to create memorials at a time of social reckoning, despite an education system that largely omitted black history. Back when I was in the astronaut program, I traveled all over the world and I met presidents and senators and congresspeople and and heads of uh, aerospace companies and heads of businesses. When you're in the astronaut program, all these companies are romancing you to buy their space gloves and to buy their space suits and buy their space helmets. And so when you when you come to the party with the ability to talk to people, and then I, I went to work for IBM Corporation, and then I had a chain of restaurants uh, here in Denver. I had five restaurants here in Denver. And then I went into the construction business. I had an aviation flying service out of Stapleton Airport when it was still there. And so when I became an artist, I had been in business and doing so many different things and negotiating with banks, talking to company heads and savings and loan heads. Well, when I got into the art business, I had a great Rolodex file. So when you come to the party with that uh, and you're tasked with doing an art project or, or some art, which I never, ever thought I'd end up doing. And, and I, I didn't do the first art until I was 45. sculpture until I was 45 years old. So I'm all self-taught. I got into this art thing on a total humbug, if you will. <laughs> I was taking my construction junk at the end of every day. I'd go out to my construction sites and I would load the trunk up with all the pieces of metal on my construction sites. And I'd take them home and on the weekends, I made art out of them for my house. And our first black lieutenant governor, George Brown, was at my house at a party. And he called me to his office when he was elected lieutenant governor. And he says to me, "Uh, Ed, I saw that art in your house. They want a, a sculpture of me to put in the Capitol building as the first black lieutenant governor. And I says, that's not good for me because I weld nails together. I weld pieces of metal together. I've never modeled in my life. (laughs) And he says, you're going to the library and you're going to get a book and you're going to teach yourself how to sculpt because you're going to be a sculptor and you're going to be one of the greatest sculptors that ever lived when I get through with you. (laughs) And I thought this guy had lost his mind. And uh, he told me a story that I'll share with you. He said, there's 350 uh, years of black participation in America. And you cannot go to a museum, a park, a gallery, a city square, and find one black sculptor of a black person. And I'm going, uh, I went to white schools all the way through. So my response was, who cares? And he got angry with me. And he asked me if I knew who Harriet Tubman was. I had never heard of her. 
he asked me who Frederick Douglass was, and he got very angry with me. And he got me a pile of books. And he said, first of all, I want you to get in one of those jets you have out there, and I want you to fly around the country, and I want you to visit the museums, the parks, and I did. It took me several months, and I could not find any black statuary. And I came back, and I said, George, I see what you mean. And so I sold all my companies <laughs> and went back to the University of Denver and got a master's degree in sculpture and ran the sculpture department there for, for I was in the sculpture department there for three years. And uh, I, I left there, and that's when I went in to start doing memorials from there. That is an incredible journey. So you moved from saying, who cares that there are no statues of black people in the United right, States, right. to crafting many important ones, including the Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial in City Park in Denver. Right, yeah. How do you think that we can seize this moment as a country, and what do you want to see change about public art and the conversations we have around it? You know, the public art that I want to see is more in the way of truth-telling. And what I mean by truth-telling, uh, I tell stories. I, I don't mind doing single image memorials. You know, I've done tons of them, okay? But I do my best, uh, all four sides of the pedestal. I, I excite the people with great stories. And all four of the sides of the pedestal are engraved with stories about the people, what they did, what they can do, and words to live by, and all that kind of stuff, you know. But the larger story, and my most successful memorials that I have, are storytelling memorials. They start early in the game, and they just walk right through history, telling the truth. And I mean, naturally, I get tons of emails. I've got 10 PhD candidates that have done PhDs on my memorials. Uh, Naturally, I'm their advisor and all that stuff, you know. And those things are in history and in archives, but that's what I like doing. And that's what I want to teach other people to expand this to. It's one thing to have one sculpture of somebody standing there as a great person. I like to give people a background, give them a context, and let them walk through history. That's what I enjoy, and that's what I would, if I were to propose doing more memorials to anybody, would would be to tell, uh, uh, because I, I like what I call visitor time. It's called stay time. And so I build my memorials to get stay time, and I can almost, I can sit down there and walk up to a memorial where nobody knows who I am, and I can time, uh, do a time watch. And they're going there uh, in a hurry, they're running, and all of a sudden they're standing there for an hour, hour and a half, and I'm sitting there watching them, and they're reading everything, every word on there, and they're studying every figure on there, and they reach up and touch it, and all that all kind of stuff. When I, but when I see that happen, you know, you say to yourself, hey, you know, uh, Dwight, you did okay. <laughs> Ed, thank you so much for sharing your work with me today. Mm-hmm. Good. This is the first art thing I've done in, in years, by really? the way. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's all about, about astronauts and flying in space and all that <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of fun to talk about art. <laughs> 87-year-old Ed Dwight, sculptor, businessman, and NASA's first African-American astronaut trainee. We spoke in August. An asteroid between Mars and Jupiter was recently named in his honor.
Like so many of us in the last year, Jody Hollander found herself turning to nature for inspiration and escape from the pandemic. The Fort Collins poet immersed herself in the outdoors, including on the screen. Here is an interesting thing she learned about Anastatica, a type of mustard plant, from watching nature documentaries. There's this dried up ball of twigs that can sit out on the Sahara for like 100 years or more and just be in this state of total desiccation for a century. And then when the rain comes, it can instantly find health and happiness and blossom again. And I just thought that was the most incredible metaphor for what we're capable of as human beings, particularly after having endured such a difficult pandemic year. I think maybe a lot of people feel like maybe they feel like a dried up ball of twigs. But this idea of resilience and coming back was really powerful to me. Hollander was moved to write something about that. Here she is with her poem, A Dried Up Ball of Twigs. Certainly it's not easy out on the Sahara when nothing seems to change. But one day the winds pick up, the sky splits open, and suddenly there's rain. Then, in only moments, the skeleton-like thing can drink its way entirely back to being green and bold and flourishing. It may be hard to believe, but we too can fold inwards, nearly die for a while. But listen, we come back. This is not religion, but the hardiness of nature designed to endure the very worst conditions. Even when hope is scant, consider we are built for moments just like this, like this resurrection plant. Jody Hollander wants poetry to be more accessible to readers, so she spends a lot of her time teaching workshops. That, of course, had to be adapted in the past year. You know, before the pandemic hit, I had a really busy schedule lined up of workshops in person, including a whole tour around the state of Arizona in all of the national parks and national monuments and those types of things you can't really replicate over, you know, with a virtual workshop. But just sort of basic uh, learning techniques, learning about musicality, learning, you know, the basics of, of rhythm and meter and sound, that kind of stuff you can do pretty well in a virtual workshop. One of her highlights from the last year was seeing the warm reception for Amanda Gorman's appearance at the inauguration for Joe Biden. The 23-year-old former National Poet Laureate gave Hollander a somewhat renewed sense of pride in her profession. As a poet, I've always felt like we sort of get ignored. And, you know, I've reached the point where if I'm at a cocktail party or something like that, I don't even say I'm a poet because sometimes I think people are going to I don't know. I don't know what they're going to think. I think it's just easier to say, oh, I'm a teacher because I'm also a teacher. So the fact that this young poet was able to come forward and just be received by our country so warmly was was really incredible. Um, I think poets were delighted to see this. And I think this is going to be a really powerful uh, bump for poetry in this country. We'll leave you with one more poem from Jody Hollander. This one was pulled from an experience she had during a teaching residency in St. Croix. On the island, there's actually a horse rescue organization that takes people out horseback riding through the rainforest and then takes you into the Caribbean 
on the backs of the horses. And these are all horses that have either been abused or abandoned, and then they've been rehabilitated through this organization. And then tourists can be part of this and can experience going through the rainforest and then going into the ocean. So I thought, oh, God, this this kind of looks like a once in a lifetime experience I'd like to try. And from that, she wrote Horse Swimming. When at last their big bodies, hot and caked with mud, dip into the Caribbean, all the horses groan and grunt noisily. Perhaps it's something primal, a kind of old contentment we humans have forgotten. The trail ride is over, and out of the familiar line, the horses swim together, bumping into each other and snorting with excitement. Some of them start to charge deeper into the ocean, kicking underwater and racing one another. Others simply float there, comfortably with the current, as if in another life they were creatures of the sea. Still others get so happy they defecate into the water. We don't quite understand. And yet, in this moment, it somehow all makes sense. Knowing the reins are useless, I'm holding the bare neck of this strong, joyful creature plunging through the water and laughing in the waves when suddenly it hits me. This business of being human is utterly absurd. Jody Hollander with Horse Swimming. The Fort Collins-based poet is planning to lead some outdoor nature writing workshops this spring and hopes to reschedule a teaching tour for the fall. She's also working on a second book, a follow-up to her 2017 collection, My Dark Horses. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Matters today, and thank you to the team who helps keep this show swimming along. Carl Bielek. Ali Budner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Avery Lill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.